welcome back to Aligning America. I'm your host, Vincent Miller, and let's jump right into things. So, starting off our little news cycle, we've got a Wisconsin recount. Yes, this was requested by the Trump campaign for the low, low price of $3 million, which he fundraised desperately after the election deadline. Um, it, it, it appears that, as the results trickle in, uh, our rough new recount is nothing new. No magic shift for Trump, no magic shift for Biden. But it did give Biden 132 new votes, which means roughly 20,000 a vote for Biden, which was very kind and generous of the Trump campaign, um, but largely insignificant. Of course, this does not quell any of the fears of election interference or fraudulence. This doesn't change anything for either campaign. But really, all it does is it means Trump can no longer call for a recount in Wisconsin. You can only call for one meaning he has now wasted his one reversal card that he could have kept in play to keep litigations going on longer or cast out longer, say if he had, you know, used this during the transition period. We could have seen a, you know, a meaningful elongation of the process, but no, he decided he thought that he could get it done. He, he honestly probably thought he could win because, of course, they do genuinely believe there's fraud, or at least that's what they put out, so... I'm inclined to believe them. And it's just a, it's a major loss for the Trump campaign. And it, it quite frankly, looks very bad, reflects poorly on their uh, arguments, especially as people like Newt Gingrich, someone who I've never really had much respect for. Uh, he likened all of this, the 2020 election, to the vote theft that occurred when Andrew Jackson had the election stolen him by Henry Clay and, and Adams. And no, that was at least contentiously agreed upon as some sort of theft because it was a split vote and Henry Clay was able to essentially crown uh, who would be next. It was a four-way race. He was the one with the third amount of votes. He was the third runner-up. Uh, and he gifted his electoral votes to who he deemed who he wanted to be president. And of course, in that, in that instance, it meant he could choose who won. Now, he chose Adams instead of Andrew Jackson, but that that isn't even it's orange to apples right at that case it's not a fraudulent system he's simply i believe trying to uh, indict this 2020 election as some sort of grand scandal which of course they've been trying to make out since day one of post-election totaling um and and again it's just it does not look good for the trump campaign going forward and we're going to talk about it more and more today that it's it's just getting more and more desperate and it's starting to look really really undemocratic unprofessional and and i honestly think this could reflect poorly on the republican party for years to come just as 2016 reflected very poorly on democrats where we cried russian hoax they cried you know all sorts of things it must have been a you know rigged election and we all saw how that happened there was no vote rigging. Trump won fair and square. And, and now Hillary Clinton is a disgraced politician who will likely hold no meaningful office in the United States ever again in either party, because even the Democrats have come to dislikers. So it's not so much that this is going to do anything for Trump personally, as I think he is he's kind of resigned from politics on the whole. And of course, this whole thing was just a publicity stunt back in 2016. You could argue he never meant to win, but was just caught up in the whole race that as he soon, you know, as soon as he started succeeding, that was that he he, he doesn't have a vested interest in com continuing. He's already done what he wanted to do to bring the Trump name back into households. And by God, he's done it. But the Republican Party is seriously going to start to falter when every single person who didn't vote alongside Trump or agree with the fraud that, that Trump is proposing right now, they're going to look like non-true Republicans. 
uh, in the eyes of half the Republican Party, and then the other half will call all the people calling for fraud not true Republicans and just Trump supporters. So it's a bad position for the whole Republican Party and further uh, reinforces my idea of both parties splitting at some point down the road when uh, ranked choice voting or star voting or favorability voting, whatever gets put in first, whatever electoral reform gets put in first for voting, I, I believe it will shatter both parties along those lines of, of extremist and centrist and, and maybe even more than two. But of course, that's that's many years down the line. I still stand by it, though. These will be the beginnings of the populist and centrist divides in both parties that I think it will change things later. Uh, has very little relevance now, but it, it, it will very much change things later as we move on. So with people like Newt Gingrich choosing a side, again, popular figures siding with Trump, it's it's bad news for the Republicans because, again, it, it just splits them more and more. And I know Newt specifically is very popular. It's, it's just as as a figure in American politics, it's it's astonishing to me that you would side with the undemocratic ideals just goes to show that he was morally corrupt far before this. This this would not be his first jump if, if he was going to decline like that. So to me, it calls into questions his past actions. But I think there's plenty in his personal life that would do such anyways. But keeping this politics only, these sort of claims are just ridiculous and, and meant only to stir up partisan fever, quite frankly. It doesn't do anything else. Making these false equivocations to genuine election controversies uh, when, you know, there really isn't one now. Moving on to some international news, some breaking international news that could genuinely mean a few things, much like earlier in the year we saw uh, Iranian hostilities as one of their ministers was killed openly assassinated, by the way, by the U.S. government, uh, we once again have an assassination of Mohsan Fakhrizadeh, and he was the head nuclear scientist in Iran. Uh, they were calling him the Oppenheimer of Iran, very much making strides in their nuclear program, which, of course, you could argue is for the much, much worse of national and international security, and I probably wouldn't disagree with you there. I think denuclearization of every country should be on the priority of the international community because I think any tensions that flare up could very likely lead to some sort of nuclear tit for tat that would end up seriously damaging the entire world. But of course, that's that's an argument for a different day right now. I just want to talk about what what it means for us now. And um, look, looking at it as it stands, Israeli leadership, of course, being the closest antagonist to Iran, other than the U.S., uh, especially in their own Middle Eastern field. They claim they have absolutely no idea who did it. Benjamin Netanyahu, prime minister of Israel, even going so far as to say that there was absolutely no Israeli involvement, even though just days before he openly called for American support against uh, an aggressive Iran and Trump having openly asked his military what the viability of an American strike on Iranian soil would look like. It's scary because these sort of statements, these open statements of aggressive hostility against uh, America's longest, most antagonistic force, this goes back all the way to the hostage crisis. We've never had, you know, post-Shah dethronement back in the 50s. We've never had good relations with Iranian uh, leadership or, or any of the like. But they being the closest to other than North Korea as a modern day antagonist and open antagonist against world peace. It's it's a dangerous place to be in when we're so open about the things that we want to do. And this is even, you know, backed up. My opinion, I think, is backed up by John Brennan, who was the former director of Homeland Security under the Obama administration. Uh, he presided over the assassination of four Iranian scientists, almost five, though one of them didn't go uh, successfully. Uh, he openly called this attack criminal recklessness, which is not to say that John Brennan did anything good 
during his tenure. But it is comical in nature to see someone who had already agreed with, you know, he agrees with international assassinations. For him to call this a bad situation is somewhat sad. It's ironic and it's comical, but it's also sad because it goes to show how bad things have gotten when you can openly talk about killing certain people and whether it was right or wrong when the people, you know, it's like talking about you ran over someone's dog as they sit next to you. You know, you could argue the benefits or the negativity of, of running over someone's dog, but you shouldn't do it in front of the victim, right? And I think we're, we're right there where the international community is openly discussing whether it was a benefit or a negative to the world community to have assassinated this nuclear scientist when the country who had someone assassinated, a, a citizen on their own soil, had been assassinated. I don't know. I'm at a loss for words because I do find this, of course, to be... Uh, you know, a net positive for world peace. But again, if you want to take that, then every nuclear scientist should have their head shut off. Uh, that, that would be the only way to secure world non-nuclear uh, explosion, no nuclear wasteland, you know, come 2025 when we all go to war for the third time. And, and that will be the last, the next war that includes nuclear bombs will be our last war, which is why I think mutually assured destruction only goes so far when you have countries that have nothing to lose, when you have countries that get, you know, internationally bullied like this. And again, not to defend Iran or any of the things they do, uh, especially not their religious-centric government who commits numerous crimes against humanity and 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 war crimes and berates their own citizens in ways that, that should not be done by a benevolent government. Uh, with that said, uh, acting like this, such brazen uh, you know, disapproval for a country and then openly walking over them because you don't care, uh, it's it's... It, it lacks a level of tact that is necessary for international diplomacy that I think the Trump admin has highlighted the necessity for, because I think the way they do things just proves that it is unviable. Uh, internationally speaking, that, that populist approach, when it was translated to international affairs, it, it shows just how unviable it can be. And so with people like John Brennan, uh, open, you know, you could argue war criminals on the side of, of being tactful of being respectful, uh, you know you've crossed the line, or at least in my opinion, you certainly have. So um, it, it's a dangerous position, especially with, again, with Israel and, and the United States being so close together and, and close in their disgust for uh, Iranian activities, especially those antagonistic towards Israel, which again, doesn't nullify the fact that Iran does some horrible things. But I think it also backs up the fact that this alliance, this Israeli-American alliance, does not need to be antagonistic. They can be defensive and they can play counter to everything that Iran does. But I don't think actively going to assassinate their private citizens on their own soil is is it the proper way to go about these things. I think there are more diplomatic ways to go about it. And um, of course, you see when he when he did speak out, John Brennan spoke out on Twitter about this. He was immediately called a terrorist and a Muslim, which, of course, reflects very poorly on the United States, but I think is also very another highlight of what the Trump admin has done. And now this does go back all the way to 2008 with Obama being accused of being a Muslim and, you know, the birtherism conspiracies. But those not to say they have weight. This is on someone who was going to be the president. Of course, there are going to be obvious conspiracies that hold no weight just to galvanize the other side. Uh, you can look to Pizzagate. You can look to all sorts of things for Clinton, which, again, isn't to say that both Obama and Hillary Clinton have negatives and have serious issues with uh, what they've done in the past. But 
John Brennan being such an insignificant figure and then, of course, being leveled with these conspiracies immediately out of the gate is, is sort of terrifying because it shows that people are no longer trying to ramp up attacks. We just start at number 100 and see if that hits. And if it does, then it works. Then if it doesn't, then it doesn't. That's a little horrifying because you'd rather see some civility there. But uh, what to expect after so many years of, of this polarization of this, you know, partisan hackery is that's just how it goes. All in all, the story does seem to highlight a few things, largely being the polarization of, of American politics, but as well as our brazen attitude toward international diplomacy that has seriously tapered off in the last four years and I think could eventually lead to some horrifying consequences that we may or may not suffer down the road. Moving on, we have some more election-related news. A little bit lighter in nature, we have former Overstock of all companies CEO Patrick Byrne. He claims he is funding an army of hackers who will save the election for Trump, which out of the gate, I'm just going to say it, it was like in the 2020 Democratic primaries when there was a company running the votes in Iowa, the caucuses in Iowa called Shadow, saying you have an army of hackers to save an election for anyone is a bit shady out of the get-go, but uh, he, he's, you know, he is known to have shared some false documents surrounding the number of ballots requested in Pennsylvania. Uh, these were intended to spread doubt surrounding Biden's victory, and we saw how that went, of course, on Twitter. Uh, he got a retweet by Donald Trump until Donald Trump realized that it was fake, uh, in which case you'd think he would take it down, but no, it's still up if you want to go look at it. It's pretty cool. Uh, it, it just straight up has the wrong numbers. Um, there's nothing else really remarkable about it. It does look official. I, I saw it initially and was a bit concerned, but no, uh, it, it just has the wrong numbers on it. They've been doctored and, and changed. Really doesn't mean a lot. I believe it was reported on OAN, uh, One America News Network, which is the far right news network that is taking over that space from Fox as Fox moves more and more center uh, by inadvertently admitting slowly and surely that Donald Trump did indeed lose the election, which many Fox News viewers find unpalatable. Uh, people like Tucker Carlson are having a serious break from the network. And I think this is the largest, you know, the large part of the segment uh, here is really just to, to dissect and to understand that people like Tucker Carlson, people, uh, I believe everyone but Laura Ingram on that, that channel has at least in some way referenced the fact that Biden has won and, and I think it's funny. I know there are compilations going around showing 2018 and 2016 where the Democrats go uh, or the rather uh, they the Fox News hosts make fun of Democrats for losing. And, you know, that is fine. But they made fun of them for whining about the losing. And I think that's understandable. Uh, I, I found it pretty sad as well when you see people back in 2016 who just can't believe the election results. And again, it's one thing to be in disbelief. It's another thing entirely to deny it. We're looking at that now, seeing that there's just denial straight up it doesn't look good and, and i know I've, I've i've touched on this before because i think it's an important topic but it, it just reflects poorly uh, and seeing members of the news community like tucker carlson as much as you may hate to see he's a member of the news community uh he has at least come around saying it's just false and people like chris wallace of course who is openly anti-trump so it's a bit less hard-hitting but he's come to say that you know the election is won by biden and quite frankly at this point i don't understand why people are still talking about it uh, you can report on Donald Trump's, you know, press conferences and you can report on Donald Trump's you know, lawsuits, uh, which, of course, he's still going one to thirty five, uh, losing miserably. And it, it just looks, again, sad. I hate to reiterate it. it. It's sad and depressing. Now, of course, you, you still have a many number of Republicans. There's a new movement in Georgia where they do believe that instead of voting for Purdue and um, the other uh, Loeffler, 
I believe is her name. Instead of voting for them, they're going to write in Trump during the Georgia primary, which is just funny because Trump is down there campaigning for both of those senators to keep the Senate 50-50 for the Republicans because if they do lose the Senate majority, or rather if the, the Senate majority doesn't stay for 51 or 52 to 48 or 49, uh, respectively, for Republicans, uh, they're going to be in serious trouble as Kamala Harris will be able to tie break and we will see some legislation pass from the, the Biden administration. Otherwise, we won't see anything really pass. So if the Republicans can hold both those seats, you know, that's game, game match and point because we're not going to see any Republican senators, you know, aside from maybe Romney on a support bill. But again, Mitch McConnell can shut that down anytime he pleases. So you're going to you're going to need to see a, a Democratic at least 50-50 with a given majority having Kamala vote to make any future legislative changes possible, uh, especially large scale ones. So it's an interesting thing to see them try and sabotage themselves, but it does call into question the thought process, because of course, if the ballots were incorrect, you know, taking it on faith that it was rigged and that the Democrats had somehow rigged the election where there were false ballots infused or people's ballots were changed unknowingly, uh, to vote for Joe Biden over Donald Trump in states, it begs the question why they wouldn't have changed them to allow for senators or congressional seats as well. Because largely speaking, over the course of 2020's election, uh, it was a very, very good year for down-the-ballot Republicans. It looked good, especially congressionally speaking and, and senatorially speaking as well. Uh, you saw Republicans hold on to a number of seats that they were projected to lose by large margins. So why is it that those are correct and infallible when the electoral the spread for the, the president is not? It calls into question what actually happened if you are going to dispute these, these ballots as unusable or fraudulent. Why wouldn't they just really rig it? Because, of course, Biden can't get much done even as stands. And even if they win Georgia and get a 50-50, a lot of those Democrats in the Senate have to desperately hold on to their seats. You know, there's a Democrat in uh, those in Virginia, West Virginia. They need to hold on to their seats because they know what's at stake in their, you know, their constituencies. They understand that if they vote too liberally, they'll be out come next election. So it's not a smart play for Democrats in, in unsafe seats to play really hard left with Joe Biden. Even you can see why it would make sense that they would rig the Senate seats and would make sense that they'd rig the congressional seats, even though they do hold a majority there and probably forever will. But of course, there's a number of conspiracy theories going around, and I think that's emblematic of a number of things. But Largely speaking, I think it's being fueled by the top. Uh, those calling into question, I mean, you look at back at 2008, you look at John McCain shutting down conspiracy theories about Obama. That led to still some semblance of the Tea Party movement. You still saw those conspiracies coalesce into a, an actual movement. But if you look back at now, look at a week ago, you see people like Rudy Giuliani and the president, you know, personal lawyer, their entire team. And you look at Trump himself spreading these rumors, showing false documents that are clearly doctored and untrue. That's dangerous because it's an emboldening factor for many Americans who want to believe in these conspiracies because it benefits their political stance. And that that is a dangerous that is a dangerous situation to be in. It's largely concerning on the whole, especially as we move forward with social media. We saw how desperately they tried to keep polarization down during these, you know, the last week of the election and so and how miserably they failed. So now all we can do is look back and, and, and quite, quite honestly, see the shortcomings of many systems that we thought would keep all this in place uh, and has not. Throughout the cycle, we saw these institutions promise security, 
be it the debates or social media or the news, we saw there would be safety, security and civility. And quite honestly, it's shown that we've seen none of them. It's dangerous in nature. So we'll have to see where it goes and we'll have to see where it develops, especially with the president's personal tirade. But quite honestly, it, it does look bleak. Our final story today is President Trump's pardoning of Michael Flynn, of course, who was found guilty of making false statements to the FBI regarding his contacts to Ambassador Sergei Kiksiak, which was then during the presidential transition period, uh, which was made as part of a special plea to Robert Mueller, who was then uh, FBI director. Regarding this, he, he had pardoned him just recently this Wednesday. Uh, which was a questionable move. Of course, some people saying that, of course, his guilty plea was then retracted later, uh, meaning that he didn't find himself guilty. He just wanted the, you know, the special plea deal uh, to end the whole situation. There were also arguments that, uh, you know, the plea deal was it was just his way of trying to get a gotcha. Uh, and, and so the pardoning was was somehow a check and balance system. I've seen that argument that it was it was just a way of keeping the checks and balances in place. But largely, it is seen as, as a bit of a strange move to pardon someone who committed perjury, who lied to the FBI uh, about an investigation, of course, one concerning yourself. So it's questionable. And of course, we, we've seen a lot of opinions. But the one I want to call attention to, of course, being Alan Dershowitz, uh, popular for, for helping all sorts of wonderful people like uh, O.J. Simpson. He also helped uh, Jeffrey Epstein and uh, Mr. Weinstein uh, in both of their cases. So we've seen a wonderful repertoire of, of who he likes to work with. But it's an interesting position to put you know, everyone in because these pardonings, generally, of course, there is a pardoning spree as the president leaves office. It's just kind of how it goes. Uh, it's sort of a debt repayment plan for those who were caught illegally doing something. And, you know, you, you would love to call it unique, but it, it's happened with pretty much every president without fail for the past 50 years. So, yeah, it's nothing surprising to see him pardon. And then there's a general call for him to pardon two people, one who was Julian Assange, which, of course, was sort of thrown out the window. Any chance of that being thrown out the window with Donald Trump's admitting that he thought that he was some sort of criminal? He believed that Julian Assange, who was unwilling to tell Donald Trump where he got the WikiLeaks material, uh, he, he called him a spy who would be hung in the old days, the better days of our nation, um, which, of course, is questionable in character. But aside from that, kind of throws out the idea that he would pardon him in any circumstance. And I think the same was said of Edward Snowden. And and unfortunately, this seems to be a running theme back from the Obama presidency, who will, you know, at least Assange is, is definitely more questionable and his mental state is questionable. However, I do believe Edward Snowden deserves to be pardoned. I do not believe that anything that he did put national security at risk. I think he was exactly as he, he claims to be a whistleblower who called the United States government out on a number of things uh, and then was maligned by that government for their own sake. And of course, I think uh, we, we wouldn't even be talking about things like the Patriot Act without his assistance. So I do believe him to be um, at least through my own eyes, not some sort of hero, but definitely a benevolent force over a malevolent force. Uh, and I see his struggle against the U.S. government to be one that is very shameful to our government. We forced him to go to Russia, where he is consistently surveilled in, in peril with his life and his, his wife recently pregnant. Uh, now, you know, their baby is under threat from the Russian government. So I, I think, honestly, I think a pardon is due. However, I know that the Obama admin was the one who claimed him to be, after he exposed what they were doing, 
Uh, they were the ones who maligned him. And of course, I do not believe that any Democrat in the next 20 years will pardon him. Uh, so it's unfortunate that Donald Trump feels that way. And quite honestly, I think both parties will not pardon either of them just because of for sure political reasons. You would need someone who, who, like Donald Trump, has no care for this system. However, he's already made his opinions abundantly clear. So it won't happen. However, post this, there's been a call for it. And you've even seen some bipartisan support. Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard, who is leaving her seat, she did not run for re-election come this next transitional period. She's very popular for supporting both of them and calling for their releases. However, to no avail, it does not look like either of them will be getting a pardon. And unfortunately, it does look like more of Donald Trump's cronies who went to jail for him will likely be getting a pardoning. Uh, which is just a shame and a degradation of the judicial system. I don't think it's a checks and balances issue. I think it's just, quite honestly, a justice issue. Um, justice gone undone. And and I believe that's how it will be. And I think that's very emblematic of the presidency as it stands, as an institution. Uh, it, it's definitely not all that it's chalked up to be. And it's a lot more, uh, a lot less noble than I think we would like to think it is, which is a, a shame in its own right. But likewise, I mean, it's it's reality. That's, that is how it is. And I think that that needs to be understood. So uh, largely speaking, nothing unnatural, nothing, you know, no enigmas coming out of the late stages of the Trump presidency. However, um, just a, a continuous reminder of the depressing state of how it actually is which, of course, I think is is what we've all come to understand from the presidency uh, of the last four years. And, and quite honestly, we may continue to see the presidency of the next four years, um, provided there isn't anything shocking, uh, no shocking about face by the Biden admin to go any, you know, genuine leftward movement like a 2008 Obama projected to be. Nothing new. Uh, same old, same old, as I've said before, and I will say again, that is the state of politics as it stands today. And uh, I'm sure we'll have some wonderful news articles going into the next week. Hopefully we will see more out of Donald Trump's court cases. Hopefully most of them will be settled by then. The recounts will have been settled and we will definitely see the state of his arguments. We know that he said if the Electoral College finds that Joe Biden has won, then he will step down. But he does believe that if they do find Joe Biden to be the victor, there has been fraud, wide, widespread fraud, many cases of fraud that I think he will continue to fight against just to protect his legacy, as I think it's it's one of those gamblers fallacies in too deep at this point. So we'll see how that develops going forward. Thank you for listening through to the end. We'd really appreciate it if you check us out at Aligning America on Instagram and Twitter. And if you really enjoyed it and want more content like this, be sure to head over to our Patreon to ensure we can keep putting out episodes, changing hearts and minds one podcast at a time. Thank you.